The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Father, we we're so honored to to hear you speak from your word. Lord, we know and believe that your word is powerful, so powerful. It can do what nothing else can. It can cut, cut the heart, change what we love, change how we think, change what we live for. Lord, it can change us to be humble before you, uh, to receive what you've said as truth, to, uh, to love you above all else. And all this happens through your son and what he's done. So we pray, Lord, that you'd send your Holy Spirit, that he would take this word and uh, cut our hearts, write it on our hearts, that we would believe, believe to the point where we love Christ as our treasure and we want to obey him in every way, no matter the cost. Do this in us, Lord. Make, make Christ seem in our hearts as valuable as he truly is. In Jesus' name, amen. How does Jesus feel about you this morning? How does he feel about you this morning? Now, I realize there's some huge assumptions in that question, okay? So I'll just tell you what my assumptions are. I believe the Christian message. Jesus is the eternal son of God who became human, lived a perfect life, pleasing to the Father, died on the cross for the sins of his people, rose from the dead, reigns now at the right hand of God. So all of that means I'm assuming he knows enough to know you, to know you very, very well. And he's personal enough, personal enough right now to feel things towards you. What does Jesus feel about you? And I ask that question because I believe this text is saying, for you to endure as a Christian through the trials and temptations and sufferings that life in this world will bring, for you to make it through that, you need to know how he feels about you. You need to know his heart towards you. So we're continuing with our study through this wonderful book of Hebrews. Our passage today does remind us of the main reason this letter was written in the first place. The author is concerned. He's concerned for this group of people he loves. He's concerned that, be, that, um, that all the difficulty and pressure and marginalization this group of people is experiencing, he's concerned that they might, as he says, let go of their confession. They might give up on Jesus. Now, context here, your confession. What's your confession? Your confession is what you believe and say in your heart and with your mouth, the, the truth that you hold most precious. It's your confession. And so for a Christian, of course, our confession, we share it together. Our confession is Christ. It's who he is. It's what he's done. So we want to hold fast to our confession. But this letter helps us remember 
This is not something that only happened for this group of people a long time ago. It's something that happens now. It's happening now. We will each be pressured, tempted, influenced to give up on our confession of Christ. You will be pressured, tempted, influenced to give up on your confession of Christ. You'll be be pressured to let go of Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, Scripture alone. What are some of the things that influence us like that? There are many. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mention a couple. One, just suffering in general. You go through suffering. Is God still good? Has he forgotten me? Is, is Jesus worth it? So it can, it can tempt you. It can influence you. The difficulty. Or how about distraction? Maybe that's the worst one. Distraction, the the pleasures of this world, and there are many, overwhelm the pleasure of knowing God through Christ. And so, less than denying Jesus, you just kind of say, oh yeah, Jesus. You kind of drift away. Let go of your confession. Or how about marginalization? This, This group of people is experiencing that. Because of their explicit trust in Christ, because they've said, we're Christians, I got them negatively labeled by their society at large. So they're rejected by certain community relationships. Some of them have even lost their property due to being Christians. Boy, that'll test you, won't it? How precious is your confession? Is your confession of Christ worth your house? Then there's just, uh, so there's suffering, distraction, marginalization. How about just our own inclination to autonomy and rebellion? By autonomy, I mean, well, haven't you ever had the thought, I think I'll make up what's right and wrong for my own life? I know the Bible says this, but you know what? To be, to be honest, I really want that. What are you going to do with that tension of desires? You're going to follow that, hey, I invent myself, I make myself? I paved my own way, boy, let go of your confession. Or one last one, suffering, distraction, marginalization, rebellion. How about self-righteousness? I'm good on my own. Maybe I could use advice from a religious teacher, but I don't, I don't need salvation because I'm, I'm good on my own. I'm a good person before God. All of these things try to loosen our hold on Christ. And we will all, and we probably all are facing some of these things right now, and we will face them somehow along the way. So, so I don't, what about you? Are you going to hold fast your confession? No matter what? Are you going to hold fast to Christ, who he is and what he's done and what he, what he says? Well, the author here, he desperately wants his, his audience to hold fast, no matter the cost. And so he seems to be saying, doesn't he, to do that, you have to know who Jesus is to you and his heart towards you. you. You need to see his heart towards you in order to hold fast your confession in the midst of the difficulty. You've got to see it. You have to see who he is to those who put their faith in him. And a major way to see that heart of Christ is in his role of priesthood. So this is a huge deal for this book. If you've read this, you'll know that one of the most profound messages of this book 
In fact, it's the theme, I think, from chapter 4, verse 14, all the way through chapter 10. The theme is, Jesus is the ultimate priest. In fact, in light of him, there aren't any other priests. He's the one. He's the only. And you saw how our text today begins. Since then, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. So that, there's the question. How do I hold fast my confession when everything's so difficult? And what's the author saying? You have a priest. You have a great high priest. So do you see? For you to hold fast your confession, you have to see him as your great priest. You won't make it without that. You have to see his heart towards you, what he's done for you as your priest. So for our text this morning, we're looking at, what, chapter 4, verse 14, all the way to chapter 5, verse 10. I think the text works like this. In 4, 14 to 16, the author summarizes kind of the emphasis of his point. And then I think in chapter 5, verses 1 to 10, he unpacks his reasoning for that point. So if it's all right with you, we're going to begin by looking at the author's arguments in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 5. We're going to see him unpack this argument. Then we're going to swing back around to sum it up in chapter 4, 14 to 16, okay? And we're going to see four things, Lord willing. The author wants to show us God's qualifications for a priest. Have you ever thought about that before? God's qualifications for a priest. Then we're going to see how Jesus just overwhelmingly perfects these qualifications. He alone meets these qualifications. Then as we build that argument, number three, we're going to see Jesus' heart towards his people as their priest. Jesus' heart towards his people. And then number four, we'll see what Jesus gives us as our priest. So qualifications, qualifications met, the heart of the priest, the gifts of the priest, okay? First of all, qualifications. Now, as we get into chapter five, maybe, maybe part of your mind is asking, why all this time on Jesus as a priest? I think there's a couple of reasons worth pointing out. Number one, the first reason the, audience, the, the author spends so much time on Jesus as a priest is just his audience, right? The, the audience of this book is uh, a group of educated Jewish Christians. And so they're tempted to leave their confession of Christ to go back to Jewish religion. And the reason for this seems plain, they would escape persecution. You could still have the Bible, the Mosaic law, still believe in God, just leave the Jesus part, you won't lose your house. Would you be tempted? And so... Because of the nature of his audience, they have a firm belief in the importance of the Levitical priesthood, a firm belief in the importance of the Old Testament. And so the author here, part of his goal is to show, you know what? He's telling everybody, the Levitical priesthood has expired because now everything they were pointing to has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Priesthood is a one-way street, and it leads to Jesus. And once he's come, there's no going back. There, there is no other priesthood. There's just Jesus. You can't leave him. Don't leave him. That's one reason he emphasizes the priesthood of Jesus. But 
there's, the, uh, there's, there's a bigger reason. It's the reason, the, this is what the Bible emphasizes. The Bible knows something about you. Do you know this about yourself? You cannot save yourself. I should have got like a resounding group of amens right there. You, know? you, you cannot save yourself. Uh, you may have a great work ethic and you pulled yourself up by the bootstraps and we salute you. You cannot do that with God. You cannot do that with God. The heart is deceitful and broken and wicked. And, and, and if you think, you know, the scales are like, if I just make 51% good, 49% bad, that would be enough. To, no, that's, that's not how the grade works. You've got to have 100% good. Moreover, the Bible's clear that if you try to create your own standard of right and wrong and then pretend that you have met your own standard of right and wrong and present that to a holy God as your goodness, he sees that as rebellion. He sees your wicked, he sees your version of good works trying to make yourself good before him. He sees that as wretched wickedness. Because by making your own standard of goodness, basically you're de-godding God. I mean, part, part of being God, right, is you, you're the standard of justice. You're the standard of right and wrong. And, and we know this. Come on. Even, even, uh, even people who aren't theists, they don't believe in God, when they're arguing together and they're like, you're wrong. You ever seen that before? You ever done that before? You're wrong. I mean, think of the assumptions there. What, what are they assuming? There's a standard of right and wrong that they're both accountable to, and they both know it. And that's kind of ridiculous if you're an atheist, isn't it? And yet in the human heart, we, no, we know there's a standard. And so, so when we think of God's holiness and he, the, the, the moral perfection of his character and his ways, you cannot save yourself. You, you can't atone for the sins that you've done. And there's no way you can change your own heart because here's the core of our sin problem, right? This is my problem. In my sin nature, I don't like God and I don't want him. Isn't that true? The core of sin is I don't, I don't want God. I want to replace him. What's going to change that heart so that you actually love the living God? And your sins are taken care of and forgiven. And you have strength and help to grow in following him. How can you do that on your own? You can never do that on your own. You cannot save yourself. You know what you need? You need a priest. Your only hope is a priest. And guess what God has sent you? The ultimate priest. He sent the priest. That's why we're talking about this. The author goes into three qualifications of a priest in chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. There you see three qualifications. I'll walk through them with you. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Every high priest chosen from what group? From human beings is appointed to act on behalf of what group? Human beings, from humans, for humans. And this is the qualification we could call solidarity. 
Solidarity. It means like you, with you, and for you. Human like you, just like you. With you. In your situation. In your circumstance. Like you, with you, for you. To walk with you, to help you, to take you somewhere. Solidarity, someone like you, with you, for you. And you know this is precious. Have you had a friend like this? Could empathize with you, was with you during hard times, was for you and encouraging. You love this person, like you, with you, for you. That's what a priest is supposed to bring, solidarity. And then, of course, the priest is to help human beings with their sin problem. You see at the end of verse 1, he's to offer gifts and sacrifices for what? For sins. So the, the priest is God's gift to bridge the gap between rebellious people and God himself so that there can be fellowship. The sin problem is met as the priest offers solidarity, like you, with you, for you. Second qualification of a priest priest has to be gentle through weakness. Look, gentle through weakness. Chapter 5, verse 2. The priest can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. Gently. The Greek word here means, this is what gentle means here, one who is not unduly disturbed by the error's faults or sins of others, but bears them gently. I'm going to read that again. What is gentleness here? One who is not unduly disturbed by the errors, faults, and sins of others, but bears with them gently. Strength under control for the benefit of someone else. Gently. So you see here, a priest is not supposed to be the kind of person who sees the failure of others and then gets overbearing and condemning, bringing the hammer down. Oh no, he's supposed to deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. These are people, they didn't know what they were doing, but they messed it up. They sinned. The wayward, they were led astray. They left the right way. They believed the lie. They sinned. They're people like us. People have, we've sinned. We've rebelled. We've made mistakes. We've ruined it. The priest is to deal gently with people who fail. And the Levitical high priest he has to be gentle with the people because he has the same problem as the people. He has the same problem as the people. The text says he himself, he himself is beset with weakness. He's been wayward. He has sinned. So he would have to offer sacrifices first for his own sins. And then if you imagine if he was wise at all, what is he pondering as he goes into the Holy of Holies and he's afraid he, he might not come out? pondering his own need for God's grace and forgiveness. And so as he recovers from that moment, hopefully that would humble him. And as he needs God's grace for himself, he could then act in a gracious way, a gentle way towards God's people. That humility in receiving God's grace should bring gentleness. You see these qualifications? You've got to offer solidarity with the people with the people, for the people, like the people. You've got to have gentleness through weakness. And then third, you have to be called by God. Look at verse 4 of chapter 5. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God. First of all, I love this. It's an honor, isn't it? 
to be a priest and serve God's people in the name of God. It's an honor. But no one takes this for them. No one takes this for himself. Who decides who the priest is? God decides who the priest is. And so just so you know, let's emphasize this. God makes the way to God. Do all paths lead to God? Well, if you're thinking of the the context of judgment before the throne, I suppose. (laughs) Do all paths lead to being right with God, to being saved by God? Oh, no. I mean, the grace here is that God sends a priest. He makes a way. And this is the way. God and his salvation, my friends, is not something we invent. That's going to be the difference between a biblical worldview and our cultural moment. Truth and life, right and wrong, salvation, it's not invented. It's received. It's received. We know who God is because God has told us we receive it. We know the way to salvation because God has made the way. God makes the way to God. So you, you see these three qualifications. What? They offer solidarity, like the people, with the people, for the people. Second one, what is it? Gentleness through weakness. Third one, what is it? Called by God. Those are the three qualifications of a priest. And you know, it's interesting. You, you ponder this, and you think of just even the stories of the Old Testament, or maybe the way this plays out in the church. Called. How many people who weren't called by God to be priests have grabbed the role for their own selfish purposes? So many. I'll resist going into that. Uh, second, people with the role being anything but humble and gentle with others. That'll preach. Not being humble and gentle with others. You realize that's a qualification for a priest to deal gently with the wayward. Third, what about solidarity? Like the people, with the people, for the people. So how many have not acted with God's purpose or the best interest in mind of the people? So, so many have failed and failed and failed, not meeting these qualifications. And then here comes the priest, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ. And so now at verse 5, the author of Hebrews starts to talk about how Jesus meets these qualifications. Now, the first order he gave us was solidarity, gentleness through weakness, called. He's going to go backwards now, okay? He's going to go called, gentleness through weakness, then solidarity. So first, look how Jesus was called. Chapter 5, verses 5 to 6. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, I love this stuff, because what's the author of Hebrews about to quote? you're paying attention, he's about to quote Psalm 2, then Psalm 110. And they were written, we'll just say, a long time before Jesus. And there, the author of Hebrews says, God was talking to Jesus in Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. And so Jesus in his human nature, imagine this. The Son of God taking on flesh, reading his Bible, And hearing Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, and that's the Father telling him 
the kind of priest he is. So Psalm 2, you're my son today, I've begotten you. God speaking to Jesus, you're the, Psalm, you're the promised king. Psalm 110, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this new priest, this ultimate priest, he will be both king and priest. And some of you might be thinking, well, what does it mean that he's a part of the order of Melchizedek? Well, I am going to say, or I am going to do what they, what they call punting. <laughs> I'm going to kick that one down the field. Because we're going to deal with it later in great detail. But just to sum it up now, here's what the order of Melchizedek means. He's a resurrected priest. That's what it means. He's the priest who rose from the dead. So just put that in your pocket. The only priest you want is the one who rose from the dead. So he's called, isn't he? You see this? Jesus was called by God in the scriptures to be God's king and priest. So God makes, his, makes the way to himself. And who is the way to God? Jesus. He is the priest called by God. And so do, do you see what the author is saying to this group of uh, this congregation? You want to leave Jesus for the Levitical priesthood? You're leaving God's priest. You're leaving the way of salvation and going into the way of rebellion. Jesus is the priest. Don't run from him. Run to him. And as you run to him, you will find, what was that middle qualification? Gentleness in weakness. Now, are we allowed to say this about Jesus? Is he gentle in weakness? Look at verse 7 to 8. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, there is a, there is a big difference here, right? The Levitical priests... That guy's weakness was he's a sinner too. He's a sinner as well. And so he needs to be humble and gentle in dealing with other sinners because he also is a sinner. Jesus is totally different in this regard. This book is clear. Jesus himself was clear. The New Testament is clear. Jesus never sinned, never once always loved his father, loved his neighbor, always kept the law, fulfilled the law, perfect in every way. How, how then would we say um, he's gentle in weakness? Well, the weakness the author is talking about is the weakness of truly enduring suffering and temptation. He truly endured suffering in a real human body, a real human context. And that is the kind of weakness that makes him so gentle because he has suffered with and for you. Now remember, remember the, the first priest we were thinking about, he's supposed to deal gently with the wayward because he's failed, they've failed, he needs to be gentle. 
I want, I want to stick my finger in your ribs a little bit here. True or false, when you succeed morally in the midst of other people's failures, you can get a little self-righteous about that. Anyone? And you're like, no, never. I can't stand it when people do that. I would never do anything like that. Oh, I got you. What is more pleasing to pride than to despise those who struggle with sin differently than we do? I don't have that problem like you, you know. Um, and we're just looking at limited evidence. It's so easy to be self-righteous towards others when they struggle with sin in a way differently than we do. And then you ponder Jesus. And it's one thing for the high priest to be like, I should be humble because I've made mistakes, so I should be humble with others. I, I should be humble as a sinner towards those who've sinned. Jesus never sinned. Jesus hates sin. Jesus is the only one who has every right to condemn the sinners. And in his priesthood, instead, he comes to suffer with and suffer like and suffer for those who have failed where he succeeded. Unbelievable gentleness. Unbelievable. And so this text talks about in the days of his flesh, right? Again, that's another, Jesus is eternally the son of God. And he had the day he came and took on flesh and lived a true human life. Prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. And, and many commentators have wondered, you know, when that is. I don't think we need to pin it to to one moment, but we can certainly think of, can't we, the garden of Gethsemane before the cross? Can, can you hear him? I mean, have you ever prayed with loud cries and tears? A groaning. The, the pain. A, a weakness of suffering. And yes, suffering is a weakness. I'm not saying it's evil, but the reason I can suffer is because I'm weak. If my body was so strong that nothing could hurt it, I would not feel pain. But my body is fragile, and many things can hurt it. And so I'm weak. And here's Jesus, thinking of the, if you think of the garden, he's tasting what's coming on the cross. And of course, there's more physical pain than we can comprehend but, you know, many, many martyrs have walked into physical pain with their, with their heads held high. Jesus, I'm sure, is concerned about things far worse than physical pain. He's going to be treated on the cross by his Holy Father as if he were the worst sinner who ever walked the face of the earth. Think of the sins he was paying for on the cross. I mean, I could be amazed at just him thinking of, of paying for my sins and all I've done, all the ways I've despised good things, all the times I haven't done what I should have done. And then we could be amazed that he, he died for our sins just in this room. Think of the skeleton in your closet that you're like, I didn't want to think about that. The thing, the thing you don't want us to know, that you, you did it. You darn well, you did it. 
And you feel shame over that. And Jesus is on the cross for that. And you think of the scope of all God's people. Think of, think of the Apostle Paul persecuting Christians for no reason. It led to their perhaps torture and death. Think of John Newton, a slave trader with people rotting in his boat. And Jesus on that cross is taking on all their sin. And still he went down into it. He knows. Jesus knows the weakness and the shame of suffering. Does he know shame? He does as a substitute. He took your place. He hung there naked. He was mocked and marginalized and reviled. He truly, in his whole life, and especially in the cross, was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. That's what the text says. He's acquaint- he knows he has met grief. Hello. He is acquainted with grief. 2 Corinthians 13.4, Paul says, he was crucified in what? Weakness. Of course, the text tells us he was heard and he's answered. His prayers were heard because of his reverence. That means he had a heart to please God no matter the cost. He prayed, not my will, but your will be done. And when was that prayer answered? He rose from the dead. Absolutely victorious over sin and death. And then the text drops this on you. He learned obedience through what he suffered. Any of you struggling with that? doesn't kind of mess with your theological system. Think of Jesus learning obedience. Was he a rebellious child? Had to learn obedience? No, no way. Number one, the author of Hebrews is often thinking, and referring, thinking of and referring to Jesus' incarnation, his humanity. And so he learned obedience, not in the sense that he didn't want to obey or that he was rebellious, but there's There's one way to obey through difficulty. And and what is that way? You have to actually obey through difficulty. You have to actually be there and feel it and do it. And so that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. He did it. He walked in to the darkness and the difficulty and he obeyed. And he did it for his people. He did it for us. He paved the way. And so, because he knows what it means to suffer like you and me, he is gentle with us in ways we hardly imagine. That's what the text is saying. He's gentle in weakness. Not like the Levitical high priest who sinned, he sinned and so do do we. Oh no, because Jesus suffered, and so have we, because he suffered with us. He's gentle in weakness. And of course, that brings solidarity. That's the third, that's the third uh, aspect of being a priest. Look at verse 9. Being made perfect, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by, a high priest, by God, a high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. So there's another head-scratcher. What what does it mean that Jesus was made perfect? 
Well, if you're thinking of his divinity, no, that's not what he's talking about. Jesus is already perfect. He's the eternal son of God. He's perfect. Made perfect in what way? We looked at this a couple weeks ago. The perfect priest, the perfect savior, has perfect solidarity with his brothers and sisters, with us, like us, for us. Look at Hebrews 2, verse 10. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, that's God the Father, in bringing many sons to glory. Where's he taking his church? Many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation, that's Jesus, perfect through suffering. What makes Jesus the perfect priest for you? He has suffered like you and for you. That's what makes him perfect. Hebrews 2.17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in what? Every respect. I heard one person, I guess I read it. Jesus is not like Zeus. He's truly human. He took on a true human nature. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become what? A merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So there it is. He's like us in every respect. Total solidarity. He knows what it is to be human and to suffer. And in his true humanity, when he died on the cross, he accomplished salvation. He paid for all of our sins. And he said, it is finished. So you've seen the, you've seen the qualifications. Called by God, gentle through weakness, Solidarity with the people. Are you convinced? Did Jesus meet them? Called by God. Gentle through weakness of suffering. Solidarity with the people. And that takes us back to see Jesus' heart for his people. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest. That word great It'll sound familiar. Megas. Mega priest. The ultimate priest. The, the, the towering priest of all priests. Since then, we have. Enjoy those two words. We. What gets you into the group of people that can say we? Do you have to be a first century Hellenistic Jew? No. What gets you into that category? We. You've put your faith in Christ. You believe God's word about Christ. You trust him. Since then, we, does that work for us today? We, we have a great high priest. He's ours and we're his. We have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. The one who came for us and is like us and is with us died on the cross for us, and rose from the dead. And now look at where he sits. It's the ultimate seat of influence at the right hand of the Father. That's our priest. That's my priest. That's your priest. That's where he is. We have that priest, Jesus, the Son of God. What should we do? End of verse 14. Hold fast your confession of Christ. 
And then you might think, and, the, and the, the people who receive this letter would think, but that's costing me my house. That's getting me insulted by others. That's taking me to hard obedience. That's reorienting my life, and, it's, and there's difficulty to it. And then look what, look what the author says in verse 15. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us in our weakness. So what's he saying? What's Jesus' heart for you in your weakness? He sympathizes. Now the way we word that, we use that English word, I don't know how you feel about that. A sympathy card, you know, and Sorry, thanks. I mean, it's nice. That just doesn't take you far enough into what this text is saying. I appreciate what Dan, Dane Ortland said in his book, uh, Gentle and Lowly. That's what Ortland said. Sympathize here is not cool and detached pity. It is a depth of felt solidarity such as is echoed in our own lives most closely only as parents to children. Indeed, it is deeper even than that. In our pain, Jesus is pained. In our suffering, he feels the suffering as his own, even though it isn't. Not that his invincible divinity is threatened, but in the sense that his heart is feelingly drawn into our distress. His human nature engages our troubles comprehensively. His is a love that cannot be held back when he sees his people in pain. So I, I like my theology. Um, some people might say I'm a theology snob sometimes, right? We all have things we're particular about. And man, I'm not letting go that um, I'm not letting go of the idea that Jesus' suffering ultimately was substitutionary. That's key to the gospel. Okay, he died on the cross in my place, and that is the whole logic of my forgiveness, of my being counted right with God. That's why I'm going to go to heaven, Lord willing, right? Jesus did it. His life, his death, his resurrection. Amen, okay? Believe that, faith alone. But we miss a little bit. The part the author of Hebrews is trying to drive at this group. Yes, he wants them to hold to the doctrine of the gospel, right? Not doing anybody any favors to, to soften that up or to let go of that. Hold to the doctrinal confession. But he's pressing in on something I think maybe our Christian tribe can miss. It's not only that Jesus accomplished your salvation in his suffering, though he did. It's that because he suffered like you, his heart is full of sympathy towards you as you suffer today. And so we're actually omitting part of the beauty of the gospel if we forget that. And that is meant to help this group of people hold fast. Because as they say, I'm being marginalized for my confession. They can look over and hear Jesus say, I know what that's like. Come and sit next to me. Remember how Paul said it? 
We fellowship with him in his sufferings. Or, or if we say, I'm so tempted. This fight to obey is almost killing me. Jesus is saying, I know temptation. I have walked that all the way through. Do you see this? He's tempted in every way. Is it a sin to be tempted? We could, we could start splitting hairs and parsing ideas. But at least in some point, in, in some way, no. Jesus was tempted. He was tempted. And I don't think he just like levitated through it like, nope, that's sin. No, thank you. Now, certainly, right? Uh, I'm sure as he saw the evils of the world, many things that are tempting to us are not tempting to him at all. But... Uh, C.S. Lewis uses the example of um, uh, a man trying to walk through a windstorm. And, um, and we, in our temptation, we're like, we walk a little bit in the windstorm, then we fall. You know, I couldn't do it. I tried. And Jesus has walked all the way through the windstorm without falling. And he knows the trial that temptation brings. And so when your heart cries out to him in affliction, in suffering, in marginalization, when your heart cries out to him, it's hard, I don't think I can make it. Jesus says, I understand. Come sit right here under my arm. Because he deals gently with the wayward who come to him. And you're supposed to know that. You're supposed to lean, you're supposed to not just trust the doctrine of the gospel. Yes, trust it. But you're supposed to lean your heart into him in your difficulty and in your suffering. And the author of Hebrews says, that's how you hold fast to your confession. It's knowing both the doctrine of what he's done and his heart for you today. Do you see? He sympathizes. Tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So now the gifts of the priest, Hebrews 4.16. What should we do with a priest like this? And here's where the rubber meets the road. This is what it's all about. Let us then, here's what we can do because of Jesus. Let us then with what? Confidence. What does confidence mean? You're not afraid. You're not timid. You're walking right in. It's, it's the expectation that you'll be accepted. It's the expectation that you'll be heard. Let us, and, and who's the us? Is it just the varsity Christians, whoever those people are? Or is it just the people who, Jesus, save me, like those people. Jesus, help me. I'm, I need you. Those people. Let us then with confidence draw near, where? To the throne. This is like the one place where you wouldn't think you could go with confidence. I mean, think of the, the high priest we were thinking about. He trembles as he goes into the Holy of Holies in that ancient temple. I don't know if I can go in there. Once a year, man, that's it. Trembles. 
And now we can just walk with confidence into the throne room, knowing it's called the throne of grace. Undeserved love. Walk right into the throne with confidence for undeserved love that we may receive mercy and find grace to help when? Now. In time of need. And when's your time of need? Now. (laughs) And if you're like, I don't need anything right now, especially spiritually, oh, brother. It's a time of need. It's a time of need. And so you see what the author's saying? Look at this priest. Look at your great high priest. Look what, yes, look what he has accomplished for you. And look at his heart towards you. And look where he's bringing you. Because what's, what's the author saying to his audience? They're being marginalized. They're suffering. They're tempted. Let go of your confession. No, Come. Come, and if you draw near, the Lord will never turn away from you. If you draw near in repentant faith, help me, he will never turn away from you. The danger zone is when you no longer draw near. You drift away. See your priest See his unbelievable solidarity, his gentleness in weakness, his calling from God to serve you in this way. This is the Father's fitting plan for bringing many sons and daughters to glory, the one who became like us in every way, tempted in every way, yet with no sin. Since we then have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would encourage our hearts, that you confront our hearts, that you would draw our hearts to you. Lord, I think of those here today who might not be Christians. I pray that they would just be considering you in a new way, in a new light, looking at you, who, you've done, who you are, what you've done. They'd be drawn to trust themselves to you, to turn away from their own autonomy and self-rulership and trust themselves to you, win their hearts to you, Lord. For those who are your people, Lord, on this Reformation Sunday, we celebrate salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for your glory, according to your word. Help us see also your heart towards us, that you are inclined to us in our need, that you invite us to come and lean on you, to draw near to the very throne for grace and mercy and help now. Because you're a sympathetic high priest. You know what it's like, and you made it through. You did it for us. We love you for this, Lord. We want to follow you forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening, and we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.